RJ, you recording? Booyah. Yeah. That's that's a yes. Obvi. <laughs> <laughs> Welcome to The Mockingcast, the podcast of Mockingbird Ministries. I'm David Zoll, your host, and in just a few moments, I'll be joined by my co-hosts, Sarah Condon and RJ Heyman. We come to you every other Friday to explore a few of the places where we currently see grace and its absence playing out in unexpected and compelling ways. We're glad to have you with us. Praise the Lord. Well, 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 we're back here on the Mockingcast. It is a beautiful, sunny May 25th here in Charlottesville, Virginia, and I am just happy to see both of your smiling faces through the internet. How are we doing out there in Houston? Things are good here. I mean, uh, our kid is throwing up this morning. I had the classic, like, kid crawls into bed, throws up on you thing this morning, so... But you know what? All things considered, yesterday was her last uh, day of school, so she got to be there for the party, so... You know, it could be worse, right? It could be a lot. Were people throwing up at (laughs) people throwing up at your house, RJ? How's it over there in uh, the other part of Houston? Uh, Great, school's out for summer. Big week this week. My oldest turned sixteen on Sunday. He passed his driver's test yesterday, so my chauffeuring load should drop by about fifty percent or more, which I'm very much looking forward to. There are currently eight. 16-year-old boys slumbering on our second floor after a you know, night of um, cheering on the Houston Rockets, who beat the Golden State Warriors yesterday, which was amazing. My wife and middle son were actually at the game, which is incredible, along with uh, J.J. Watt and Justin Timberlake and all the celebs. So oh, wow. uh, final finals are over. I'm on vacation starting today. So uh, yeah, things are pretty good. And, and my baby is still asleep. As is my wife, so it's just it's all it's all really coming together in the Heyman household this That's morning. Awesome. So I'll, I'll have you, you know. Yeah. I'm jealous. Yeah, I'm glad to hear that. Okay, no. crushing it. <laughs> You're crushing it. Just well, crushed. Just crushing it. The first thing to talk about today is some little hashtag mom life adventures that the Reverend Condon shared with us all uh, that also relate to the royal wedding, which is which had transpired about a week ago, Saturday. And Sarah, I just thought you could sort of relay what it is you were trying to communicate or what happened to you or what happened to the people at your pool the other day. So trigger warning for people who are deeply affected by old panties from Target. <laughs> <laughs> RJ's face right now. Um, we, I was at the pool with our daughter, and our daughter hates to swim, and I'm trying to get her in the pool. It's a whole situation. It's always a whole situation. We're at a swim school. I don't know if you guys do swim schools, but it's a total racket. They steal all your money. They don't teach your kids how to swim, and, but you feel like a terrible parent if you don't like put your kid in one, so she's in a swim school, and um, anyway, I was trying to get her in the pool, and I was like, not paying attention to how I was standing is the best way to put it. I am a tall woman and um, finally got her in the pool was feeling amazing. Right. So victorious. And I walk out and this mom comes over to me and she's like, Hey, I just want to let you know, like I was going to knock on the glass, but um, when you were bent over, like every, everybody saw your underwear, like we all saw your butt and she, and she goes, and then she continues. And then when you turned around to put everything back in your bag, everybody in the pool probably saw your butt too, like poor them. And I was like, what just happened to me? 
Um, and you know, I take some risks in writing, but the risk of, um, of trying to compare what happened to me to the presiding bishop's sermon at the Royal wedding is probably one of the bigger jumps I've made in writing. But for me, the moment was like this clear and in mom world, we, we do this a lot to each other, but it's, it's a clearly human sin where we want to sort of question joy or steal joy or, you know, cause I know I came out thrilled that she got in the pool and it was like, I just got hit with basically like humiliation and critique, um, from peers. So, you know, I mean, the Bishop Curry sermon has gotten a lot of, um, feedback. I would say the circles that I run in, which tend to be very Episcopal church circles, which just tends to be left of center, had just a whole lot of feedback that didn't have anything to do actually with his sermon, but sort of the way the media talked about him. Um, people were upset that uh, that the media kept saying he was from Chicago, which, you know, basically w- you're getting mad at the CBS intern, right? You know, <laughs> like that's what's happening, who has Wikipedia um, as a resource. And, uh, and people were mad that, you know, they didn't use his full title and it was interesting. There were some claims of racism. There was a whole blog post I saw that was sort of viral about, you know, how this is the media being racist. And, you know, what was interesting to me was only white people generally saying this. But um, some of them were also saying, you know, he's not just some preacher at a storefront church or whatever. And th- that sounds sort of racist to me. So <laughs> anyway, it's just um, it's been interesting to kind of watch the reactions. There's I think a, a pretty valuable conversation that J.D. Koch started on the article itself. So anyway, yeah, I mean, what do you think about it? It reminds me of when people get into like my favorite band, mm-hmm. you know, like when someone says, hey, have you heard this Beach Boys song? And they're excited about it. My tendency is not always to be like, "Isn't aren't they great? I'm so glad you're listening to it. It's like, well, you know, that's the wrong version you're listening to. Oh, yeah, you know, yeah. you, you, it, there's a there's a better version yeah. I could play you. And and in some ways, sort of like make sure you know that you're not a real fan. Yes. Or that uh, that I have a my identity is more wrapped up in this. And, and I'm going to correct right. what you're enjoying about it. And I end up taking it away. And then all of a sudden the person finds themselves not that interested in the Beach Boys anymore because there are people like me out there. And in fact, I was I went and saw the movie Solo last night almost serendipitously, the new Star Wars film. And that's a, a culture, just like the Episcopal Church, um, kind of dressed the same in a lot of ways. Yes. And they're like, you know, it, there's a level of fandom, a kind of a gatekeeper thing where like, you can't just be a casual Star Wars fan. You know, you have to, where you'll get corrected very quickly. And I really do think what you said was valuable. And you see that the internet, people feel like that they need to just correct each other all the time. And when you're corrected, it's always the law. I mean, it always has this effect of suppression and resentment and oftentimes the desire to rebel. And you see that in every kind of case. And this is just one. I thought there was a wonderful post. And I also thought what JD said, you know, if we're really evaluating, I I loved Bishop Curry's sermon because I just, my bar is so low that for someone to mention Jesus as a viable reality in that context, that's enough for me. You know, it's like, okay, great. Was it like, yes, the kind of, love, love, love. It was a little bit like the Beatles and I like the Beatles and I think love is wonderful at the same time. Yeah. Being told to love another person rarely gives me the ability to do it, but 
that's almost beside the point for me because I find JD's critique is the critique that we saw on Mockingbird, and uh, you know, w- w- this doesn't mean that we can't you know comment about how people were proclaiming or not proclaiming the gospel, but um, it does speak to what you what you talked about was this very real tendency we have propensity to um, to really assert ourselves and justify ourselves at the expense of other people's joy. Mm-hmm. And I find it to be really pernicious and, and awkward and, and terrifying also. And I do it myself. I find myself, to, like, I, like as I said, with the bands, I do it all the time. I do it every time RJ tries to tell me about something he's listening to, I immediately tell him how it's actually not quite the cool enough thing. You're like right, the Mumford and, Son- <laughs> Mumford and Sons has been out for a long time, RJ. <laughs> yeah, I don't, I don't, I don't like Mumford. I don't like Mumford and Sons, but it, but I do, but I do remember Dave, just to, not that you sent, haven't sent yourself up enough already, <laughs> but I remember about 10 years ago or so I, a bunch of my CDs have been stolen and I knew, I, and I know you have an extensive collection and I was like, Hey Dave, would you, would you happen to have, um, you know, Billy Joel's greatest hits on CD? And you're like, Oh yeah, RJ, I, I don't listen to Billy Joel. <laughs> And I was like, oh, okay. Well, I, <laughs> but uh, I do but for the record about, listen to Billy Joel now. No, no, but then about, a bit, about five years later, I happened to be in your office or your car and what came over the stereo <laughs> but some Billy Joel. And I looked over and I was like, hmm, guess who was ahead of the curve, Dave? <laughs> this guy. Uh, <laughs> but with regard to Michael Curry's sermon, which I just watched, like literally this morning, right before we got on, because I had not watched it, I had watched the SNL spoof, which was excellent, uh, which was hilarious, yeah. and and uh, but anyway, so some of the conversation, yeah, I've been seeing was you know not really about his sermon, but about obviously his sexual ethics mm-hmm. and the ethics of the Episcopal Church mm-hmm. and more conservative people getting very sort of up in arms. But then other people on that end of the spectrum being like, hey, can we just, as you said, Dave, celebrate someone talking about Jesus mm-hmm. and love in front of 2 billion people? Mm-hmm. You know, what, is, what does Paul say? You know, if they're, if they're talking about Christ, like it's a good thing, mm-hmm. you know, no matter, no matter what they're saying. Um, and, and can we just, can we celebrate this rather than constantly being against everything all the time and being angry all the time? But the thing that made me think, again, to go back a few podcasts was just, Again, imputation, that I really do feel like, humanly speaking, all love is, is imputation. And if you love someone, you will impute to them pure motives. And if you don't, if you hate them and you hate what they stand for, you will impute to them evil motives. Mm-hmm. You know, so it just, it, it just is so striking how your impression of any person or what they do or don't do, whether that's someone you know or don't know, is just seems 100% wrapped up in how you feel about them. You know, whether you love them or not and how much rope you're willing to give them, how much slack you're willing to give them, or conversely, how you're willing to call them out on seemingly the pettiest, smallest stuff. Because it was a good sermon. It wasn't the greatest sermon I've ever heard. <laughs> it was striking to hear it in that, that context. Um, but again, he's talking about Jesus and clearly it's had an impact. And then he gets to go on Good Morning America yeah. and the Today Show and, the, and talk about Jesus some more. And yes, I may not agree with him on 100% of everything, but what does Jesus say? You know, when John comes like, hey, Jesus, there's there's someone else casting out demons. Stop him. Stop him. And Jesus says, if he's not against us, he's for us. Like, leave the kids alone, you know, like, let them do their thing. And anyway, those are those are my thoughts. It's also like why it's like awful to be like in major church leadership. I'm, I mean, watching the fallout from any like major church leadership stuff, I'm just always like, you know what? 
if my husband ever gets elected bishop, like I will send he and his second wife like the nicest commemorative bowl because <laughs> <laughs> I heard that. <laughs> That's really funny. That's uh, you. You got me, Sam. That his second wife will have a beer. <laughs> Congratulations. Well, that might be the stipulation for him being elected bishop. Right. It's like we love you, Josh. However, <laughs> it's your, um, this lady. This lady who keeps flashing us. Uh, well, along those lines, in, in terms of the culture in which we live and the overcorrection and the almost, you know, competitive correction, is this amazing article that appeared in The Atlantic from Jordan Bissell. And she uh, writes about all sorts of things, but oftentimes the technology. And she writes, uh, vegan YouTube stars are held to impossible standards. It's like it's, it's almost an onion uh, headline. And she begins by talking about this girl named Stella Ray, who is a prominent social media vegan. And now I'm a person uh, who doesn't, I'm not a vegan, and I, I didn't know, this is a deep dive into the vegan social media world, but it's fascinating. Jordan writes, like many people in this online community, Ray entered into veganism with evangelical flair. After struggling with an eating disorder in her early teens, she came to see veganism as morally righteous and took to aggressively quote, spreading the vegan message in her words by posting confrontational videos like dumb things meat eaters say, in which she tells non-vegans, eggs are literal chicken periods. Why would you want to eat that? Um, Whoa. <laughs> there you go. Hello. Uh, her tone changed when she started getting harassed online. She said she expected she'd get comments from people who aren't vegan, like, oh, you need to be eating meat. But the majority of the negativity actually came from vegans themselves. Surprise, surprise. She goes on, Ray's experience is not unusual among vegan social media stars. The content creators are regularly held to a standard of perfection when it comes to their diets. Being a perfect vegan does not just mean only eating non-animal foods. It can mean a vast variety of things to different people. There are gluten-free vegans, refined sugar-free vegans, raw vegans, raw till four vegans who only eat cooked food after 4 p.m. That's what I do. That's definitely me. (laughs) And the small but vocal group of junk food vegans who try out vegan versions of popular treats. There are so many opinions about Carob. <laughs> yeah, there's so many opinions My about My mom the, made me eat that. It's an Good abomination God. before the Lord. Okay, sorry, Dave. It Keep really going. is. Jeez. <laughs> Ugh. Uh, no, I, there are so many opinions about the right way to be vegan that anyone who posts meals online almost inevitably receives some amount of backlash. Many vegans have made spreading awareness of the evils of eating animals central to their identities. But in the process, food bullying has become a major issue within the online vegan community itself. This kind of diet critique can be dangerous, especially for vegans with a history of disordered eating like Ray. While not every vegan YouTuber has a history of disordered eating, many do. Quote, my eating disorder story, end of quote, is an almost expected video upload on most popular vegan channels. Now I'm going to read a little bit more, but I thought we'd break for your commentary about the vegans. Well, I have this like over, I mean, this is the center in me, but I really now feel compelled to like start taking pictures of steaks and like just hashtagging it like that vegan life, you know, like just, <laughs> just to see what would happen. Um, Poke the bear some more, Sarah. You know, Do it. Exactly. I used to work um, on the eating disordered floor. I was a chaplain uh, at a psychiatric hospital in New York. I did that for a bit. And um, it was amazing how many of them uh, were vegan. I mean, it really does. I mean, I, I understand that people sort of have this ethical imperative that 
makes them become vegan. But I haven't. Oh, my gosh. I'm, I'm going to get some blowback. I haven't met a vegan that doesn't seem a little like neurotic. Like, it's so legalistic, you know? <laughs> I'm going to get, like, death threats from vegans. Um, I'm a vegan, Sarah, so thanks. Having just, like, gone to your house to, like, have meat cooked on with those giant eggs, I'm I'm a little surprised by that statement. I didn't actually eat any of that. That was just for my guests. That was me showing hospitality. You know, I don't know. It's It's hard for me. I mean, so I know a few vegans who are vegans for health reasons, like they've got heart stuff or whatever, and cool, but, like, it's a... I don't know. It's just so many, so much law. I feel like I already have so much law in my life already. And I think when we see this stuff lived out on the internet, which is like, you know, the wild west of legalism, like, of course it gets like pretty terrifying pretty quickly. Mm. Yeah. It, if you've listened to the, that this American, or and I think it was in Invisibilia recently where they talked about the punk community in Louisville and uh, the call out culture among the punks in this small subset of Louisville and it just being absolutely merciless of people trying to live consistently and by a very strict set of ethics that were sort of in reaction to other conventional ethics, but just as oppressive. And in fact, when you transgress these, they basically want to kill you. Mm -hmm. And there's no, there's no sort of a grace or forgiveness baked into the system at all. But RJ, what do you think as, um, as a person who, uh, doesn't struggle with disordered eating from what I can tell? I hate, I hate you. <laughs> um, I, I'm happy. I mean, whatever. I'm happy for people to do what they want to do. And at the end of the day, uh, it probably actually is a more ethical stance not to eat meat because of the resources it takes to raise livestock and the way that livestock are treated in our country. And I, I had a phase in my life during college where, yeah, I read some stuff and watched some stuff and I felt pretty compelled to be a vegetarian. And then it was like, well, maybe I'll just do free range meat, you know? And then that was, that was the slippery slope to now. I'm just like, yeah, give just, I'll just eat. Now eat, you eat, eat the Costco meat. Meat. Me the meat. I like the meat. Costco meat is Costco amazing. Costco meat is really good. Get, man, if you want to, if you want to smoke a brisket, get it at yeah. Costco because it's prime brisket and it's uh, anyway, yes, Costco <laughs> is good for meat. Free, free tip. But, <laughs> yeah, it's for all yeah, the free, vegans exactly, out there. You're welcome. <laughs> brought to Mockingbird, brought to you by Costco. Um, yeah, I don't know. All these subcultures, you know, the 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 answer clearly is not control and and laws and rules and accountability and all these awful. I just I feel bad. I just feel bad for these poor people. And at the same time, if you put yourself out on social media or any kind of media, you're just setting yourself up for criticism. Yeah, I mean, this is by no means a value judgment on veganism or healthy eating or anything like that. The, the slide into what this called orthorexia is what really interests me. The former, I'll read a little bit more from the article. The former vegan YouTuber Alex Jameson insists that unhealthy restriction is still rampant within veganism. After being a strident vegan for nearly a decade, she had developed insomnia, an irregular menstrual cycle, and chronic anemia, all of which she traces to stress, and orthorexia, an unhealthy obsession with healthy eating, which Carrie Willard wrote an amazing thing about on Mockingbird one time. Mm -hmm. To deal with these issues, Jameson decided to loosen her self-imposed restriction and eat animal products again. She waited more than a year to reveal the change. She says that the backlash that occurred once she finally told her audience came almost exclusively from other vegans. Many vegans she considered to be her friends refused to speak to her again once she began to eat meat. One woman emailed her and wished her dead. I mean, that's, uh, that's very close to what you're dealing with when we talk about the religiosity or the seculosity of food. This is what we're talking about. There's a righteousness here. There's a complete identification with purity that puts 
a lot of Old Testament standards to shame, yeah. I think. Yeah, and yeah, yeah. the fruit of that, even if the intention is health, the fruit of that kind of over-reliance on control and prohibition and the search for righteousness in oneself and in one's own actions is basically everything that's being talked about here. And I think those of us who are, you know, by no means superior, but I think that with, with Christianity, you have, you know, the law that does drive you to your knees, that points out just how hypocritical you are and how far you are from actual righteousness. But then that is, of course, where we hear the words where actually we receive the grace of God in, in Jesus. And I think that that's a, it's a, it's an analogy that's almost, you can't, I can't make up. So I feel for these folks and um, I do like, uh, you know, cliff bars and uh, smoothies and things like that. I commend them to you. Really? But I also... <laughs> that's all they eat. I just... <laughs> cliff bars I or do, smoothies, I mean, yes. Cliff I know bars, that yeah. neither of the other people on this podcast want to say anything negative about vegans, but I do. Um, I just feel like... <laughs> Please continue. <laughs> continue. <laughs> free to cut it i it is i mean the houston chapter of PETA will be at your door momentarily <laughs> is there a houston chapter of PETA? um i think it is a system of laws and it attracts people typically has been my experience and certainly has been my experience in chaplaincy who are who are and we see that we see this in the article who are just like trying to like it's an eating disorder it is an eating disorder. I mean, it is not an eating disorder for everyone, but it is like I keep experiencing it in people who even just I meet like everyday people where it just becomes like another way of disordered eating. Right. So it it gives people I mean, I don't know. I, I had to sit in all these rooms with these women who claim to be vegans and it gave them a word for like killing themselves slowly. So I don't know. I just, it's, I, I'm like, and I, I realize it's probably like more of a me thing, but I just like, I'm every time I hear vegan, I'm like, Oh, I don't know guys. Does that seem like a good idea? I mean, Sarah, I, I honestly think you're, you're, you're right about this. I mean, I, I have known a few, most of my vegetarian friends are people that have tried veganism mm -hmm. and it was just too much. And they found themselves sliding into all this and they still care, but they just can't care that much. Life is too difficult. Uh, but yes, it attracts that kind of personality, just like certain forms of Christianity, right. hugely law-based right. forms of Christianity, attract a certain right. personality type. Right. And you can you you can see that. And to the point you're making, Dave, about you know God's law, you know big L versus human law, small L. Um, yeah, the amazing thing about the Sermon on the Mount, and even those legalistic Christian traditions you're talking about, it, it always ends up being kind of law light. Mm. Because it, it does because nobody can nobody can live up to the Sermon on the Mount. I find a fascinating sort of actually Muslim critique of Christianity is that one thing that Muslims I will say I've read is at least Muhammad gave us laws we could do. Oh. You know, like we can give away two and a half percent, we can abstain from alcohol, and we can try to visit Mecca, and we can pray five times a day. But this Jesus ethic, it's beautiful. It's amazing. Like the the, the Sufis, the, the mystic uh, Muslims are very into it. But it's so high, it's so undoable as to be almost completely disconnected from human reality. And so if you want the law, like go all the way and then, you know, blessed are the poor in spirit, mm -hmm. you know, blessed are those who mourn, mm -hmm. you know, you will be drawn into poverty and onto your knees, whereby by the grace of God, you will find the grace of God. Um, but this law light, this sort of this, this doable law, which at the end of the day ends up being not doable, 
uh, but seems like it is. It can only be a weapon for harm, you know, and sort of self-righteousness and, and judgment. Anyway, that, there's my rant. No, it's, it's <clears throat> wonderful. I think it's, um, it's, it's such a perfect lead-in to the final piece that we we're going to speak about, which uh, was written by Crispin Sartwell, a Dickinson philosophy professor. Uh, is a column in the New York Times call, uh, entitled, What's So Good About Original Sin? And I kind of wish, I, I was thinking about, you know, we're going to put it in the weekender this week. And we just, I just like to post the whole thing on Mockingbird. But let me read a little bit about it, because he's arguing for a kind of a secularized version of original sin. But he says this, When I look within, I see certain extreme failings. I have not been able to get rid of most of them, and I have accumulated others as I've gone along. Perhaps you've done better, but most of us certainly come up short of our own ideals, ones I hope most people, religious or not, generally share. To be generous, peaceful, energetic in helping others and hesitant to help ourselves at their expense, to take care of the world we inhabit, to not only not kill one another, but to love one another. Even by our own mortal standards, we are profoundly flawed. And then he goes on to say, there's really no need for God's punishment when you're making your own hellfire. As Paul told the Romans, and this is David Bentley Hart's uh, translation, I do not know what it is that I accomplish, and what I wish, this I do not do. Instead, what I hate, this I do. Here we are, Romans 7, the actual words being quoted in the New York Times. Then he goes on, there is some level of self-scrutiny too merciless for most of us, some inner corridor too dark. We are mystified or purport to be by mass shooters, for example. What could possibly motivate a person to want to kill everyone? What could turn them so against their own species? I suggest that to answer a question like that, we must look within ourselves at our own violent fantasies, the ways we hate or negate the world, our moments of imagined annihilation of people we fancy to be our enemies, our feeling at times that we are being arbitrarily persecuted or misunderstood. Perhaps, if we were witheringly honest, we might see a school shooter within us, or a bully or abuser of the sort that helped create people like that. She, he quotes, he gives this amazing quote of the American feminist Voltairine uh, de Clare, I'd never read before, saying, uh, she was speaking about Ralph Waldo Emerson, she says, I think that within every bit of human flesh and spirit that has ever crossed the enigma bridge of life, from the prehistoric racial mourning until now, all crime and all virtue were germinal. What a great quote. Mm. He finishes, the doctrine of original sin is an expression of humility, an expression of a resolution to face our own imperfections. In undertaking any such act, there is risk. To allow the self-scrutiny required in this act to turn to self-loathing would be debilitating. But there is much to affirm in our damaged selves and in our damaged lives, even a sort of dignity and beauty we share in our imperfect awareness of our own imperfection and our halting attempts to face it and ourselves. Well, amen. I mean, what, what more is there to say? Uh, he unpacks the risk of original sin, the way that it's been twisted into self-loathing but also the deep humility and even compassion and self-understanding that can result from this quote, hashtag low anthropology that we sometimes get up in arms about. I've got more to say, but I want to hear what, what you guys thought after reading this. It's, it's encouraging to see this, like you said, in the pages of the New York Times. And then the other part of me is just like, well, duh, <laughs> you know, like, come on. And it just makes me... Again, it's one of these things that makes me sad that I feel like the Christianity that so much of our culture hates and is sort of rebelling against, especially, you know, sort of quote unquote liberal culture, isn't actually sort of New Testament Christianity. And that if they knew what, 
you know, sort of New Testament Christianity actually was and what Paul actually wrote and what Jesus actually said and did rather than what sort of whatever Christians injured them or, or whatever the loudest, most strident Christian voices in our culture are saying. I don't know. They may be more inclined to embrace it because, you know, as he says, it's, it's a very short line from embracing some sort of idea about original sin to then humility uh, to then forgiveness you know that 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 if original sin is a thing forgiveness seems to be the only option you know as opposed to control as opposed to legalism and and uh accountability and all those all those sorts of things and if, and if you're really looking for forgiveness and and this is something again michael curry said pretty clearly in his sermon and on good morning america you know that Jesus brings this this new idea into the world, God's unconditional love. You know, not just love if you do the right things, if you follow the right rules, if you're good, his unconditional love. And so this is something I have such a heart for. Like I want to see, I don't know, New Testament Christianity go out into the world in this kind of way. And so it, it seems incredibly obvious on one side and then sort of encouraging and then also a little discouraging that it seems like what our culture thinks Christianity is is so far away from the the actual thing. Mm. There was a priest in this diocese at my husband's church who had been there when we got there. His name was Israel Asim Bibwe, and he um, he resigned from our church, took another church, and within six months of that, he had been murdered by his teenage son. And his teenage son had also murdered Israel's wife, Dorcas, and their son, his brother. He murdered his brother, Jay, who was five years old at the time. And it is the hardest thing we've ever been through in ministry because Israel had just left our church and was so beloved. And um, no one had answers for why it had happened. No one could make sense of why a 19-year-old would do this to his family. And, you know, for a year, we just— cried and prayed and tried to make sense of it. I was at a luncheon at St. Martin's about a year later, and I happened to be sitting by a woman from a church that Israel's family had started at when they moved to America. They were originally from Uganda. And I was asking her if she knew how this son was, who was in prison now, who had murdered everyone, and kind of sort of pushed her a little bit, like, do you know why? Do you know why? She said, no, we don't, we, you know, we have no idea why. We don't know why he did this. We can't figure out why he did this. But she said, there's a man at our church. This is St. John the Divine, because this is a, a church in Houston, big church in Houston. It's a great church that Israel had served at. There's a, there's a man at St. John the Divine, and his brother killed his entire family when he was a teenager. And she said, and he's he started to go visit Israel's son in prison now. And I was like, that's Christianity. I mean, that's... We don't know why, but this guy who's been through this horrible thing on the other end of it has decided that he's going to show up and talk to this kid and love him and pray with him. And I think that's why New Testament Christianity is like the worst sell in the world <laughs> and won't catch on. And I think it's why we will people won't be honest in the world about who we are because it's so radically jarring and it's so mm. unbelievably unfair. And it's also like heartbreakingly beautiful. I mean, that's the whole thing, you know. So it is frustrating. I agree with you, RJ, to read this and to be like, come on. Um, but when you, but when you see it, like, you know, we all have those stories in our lives that we've seen it manifest in that way. And you, you just like, I mean, you, you're speechless, you know? Mm. Mm. Yeah. I mean, I, uh, having too optimistic a view of, of people is a, is a great recipe for hating them. Right. Uh, 
would come or to killing them. Killing them. Or killing yeah, them. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Killing yeah. them. Yeah. I mean, yeah. I, I was thought, um, I mean, Sarah, I, I kind of am hesitant to even follow what you just wrote because that was uh, so tragic. I, 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 anyway, but here we go. Uh, I was thinking about how Philip Roth, the great author, mm-hmm. American author, died, who wrote Portnoy's uh, Complaint and American Pastoral and all these uh, kind of insane and wild, but also beautifully written books about deeply troubled men. Earlier this year, the New York Times Magazine asked him, I had one of the final interviews with him, and the interviewer said, one of your recurrent themes has been male sexual desire, thwarted desire as often as not, and it's many manifestations. What do you make of the moment we seem to be in now with so many women coming forth and accusing so many highly visible men of sexual harassment and abuse? And this is what Roth wrote. Clearly he wrote it rather than said it. I am, as you indicate, no stranger as a novelist to the erotic furies. Men enveloped by sexual temptation, beset by shameful desires and the undauntedness of obsessive lusts. Over the decades, I have imagined a small coterie of unsettled men possessed by just such inflammatory forces they must negotiate and contend with. I've tried to be uncompromising in depicting these men each as he is, each as he behaves, hungry in the grip of carnal fervor and facing the array of psychological and ethical quandaries the exigencies of desire present. I haven't shunned the hard facts of why and how and when tumescent men do what they do, even when these have not been in harmony with the portrayal that a masculine public relations campaign might prefer. I've stepped not just inside the male head, this is the important part, but into the reality of those urges whose obstinate pressure can menace one's rationality, urges sometimes so intense that they may even be experienced as a form of lunacy. Consequently, none of the more extreme conduct I've been reading about in the newspapers lately has astonished me. Mm. I mean, that's um, wisdom that's dark, but it's beautifully said. And I think that he is a person who, you know, he says what a lot of people are afraid to say. And when he talks about male libido and violence and things like that, he's not whitewashing it. He's not justifying it by writing about it, but almost by writing about it, he's disarming it in some way. And the beauty with which Roth wrote about these kind of horrific tendencies is somehow enough in a lot of ways. And I don't want to say that it is enough. I don't think a secularized form of original sin is actually uh, the answer to the world's problems. I think that it will be sort of nihilistic, if not buffeted by or at least addressed by or answered by the unconditional love and grace of God in Jesus, mm. as, as RJ yes. said, as yes, indeed, Michael Curry said. But Roth is someone to which I am, uh, he's not interested in the public relations campaigns around human uh, condition, which all of us are, in fact, interested in. We are interested in, w- women are interested in ways, and men are interested in ways, and old people are interested in, and young people are interested in, we're all interested in spinning and Jonathan Haidt always talks about how we have an inner lawyer, but also an inner press secretary who's constantly spinning the quote, the narrative to conform with whatever preconceived notions they have, the motivated reasoning. RJ, you talked about that in terms of how people respond to Michael Curry or how they respond to Christianity in general. They're motivated. We're, we're all motivated. If we want to like something, we'll find reasons to like it. If we want to dislike something, we'll find reasons to dislike it. And uh, here you have what Roth, as a great artist, can do is use that in you know, that scalpel almost to tear away in sometimes with beautiful prose and deeply disturbing prose as well, all the artifice and to get as far as you can 
beyond the inner press secretary to short circuit that function. And I think great art does this, and it does it routinely. It's what you see in things that really penetrate the recesses of our hearts. But it's also what we see in the Bible, I think, that that leaves the law of God, which dismantles all of our rationalizations and all of our self-justifications of putting ourselves on the right line of things. So that's what I was thinking about. Do you guys have any response to that? No. Mm -mm. Well, (laughs) maybe that's a good place to end. We do two times a year. Do we send out big appeals to help support this work and ministry and this podcast, in fact? And we just sent one out this week. Um, You know, the truth is, Mockingbird, you know, we've got so much going on and we're we're developing an app. And we're later in today, we're doing the first recording session of the lectionary podcast, which we're bringing back. And we're trying to redesign our site and we're trying to keep these things moving along that, that are so fun and such a joy to do. But the truth is we really do need help, and we're a little bit behind the ball fundraising-wise right now. I think this year we needed to raise about $360,000, and we still have got about 190 of that to raise. So if you're a person who wants to support us, uh, I encourage you to do so uh, and do it now. <laughs> if you want to become a monthly giver, a monthly donor, even $5 a month to you know $500 a month, you will get an automatic subscription to our print magazine. And uh, yeah, we just we encourage you. Do you guys have any any uh, any encouragements there? I do. I want to I want to talk about this, and I'll just say Dave did not ask me to do this. But when I was at the Mockingbird Conference, I just uh, in New York, I had some really just great conversations with people, and I think what I understood in a way, in a clear way that I had before, is just the incredible impact that the ministry is having, really across our country and even across the world. And in this way, I would say. First of all, it's a huge encouragement to people who are out there in full-time Christian ministry, which can be very difficult and and challenging and conflicting, and to feel like they are part of something and they have a hope and peace being spoken into their lives. Um, I think for people who are Christians, but maybe haven't been in some way, uh, you know, the old answers don't make sense anymore. I think Mockingbird allows them to keep on being Christians in a thoughtful and honest way when they've sort of come to terms with these realities about themselves and about other people that we've been talking about today. And then also, I think, it enables Christians to be more effective evangelists because it enables them to be honest and to connect with people who aren't Christians in a way that makes sense um, emotionally and intellectually. So I think the ministry is hugely important um, for, again, uh, supporting and sustaining people in ministry, for allowing people to keep being Christians when they've encountered their own sin or the sin of others, and for helping them in their evangelistic efforts. So um, I just encourage people to to support this really vital work. And Dave, I just think you and the board and the staff have done an incredible job, and it's an honor to be a part of it. Thank you. Now I want to make a national public radio joke. <laughs> no, seriously. So every so um, I do not hide the fact that I basically have national public radio on right now. I have it on all the time. And I'm the kind of person that will like endure the pledge drives, which I don't know why I do, because they cause me such rage because they say things like if you've ever listened to these, they say things like, you know, connect with the community, you know, like this is a way to like 
connect with your neighbors. And this is a way for you to understand the world and blah, blah, blah. And every time I hear that, I'm like, this isn't community. This is national public radio. No one's like, no one's being spiritually edified by this. So cool it with the talk. And it strikes me that this is actually a community. For me, I love Mockingbird and I write for Mockingbird because I feel like there's a there's a whole conversation that's happening that we get to be a part of. And we get to explore God's grace in the context of the world in a way that no one else is doing because we do it in such a way that we don't hide from the world, but we also don't say, isn't the world, isn't everything going great in the world, right? It's this radically different way of living out our Christian life. And it's a way that's based in scripture that says like, you know, this world is a suffering place and it needs to hear the good news of the gospel. So, I mean, the thing I always say about Mockingbird is even if I didn't work for it, I'd be reading everything and listening to everything and showing up at every conference because this message has saved my life. And so if you feel at all the same way, I would just really encourage you to give. Mm. Wow. Thank you, guys. Thank you. In, uh, well, Dave, how can people give, just very specifically? On our website, there's if you go to www.ember.com, there's a, a page that says support. At the very top, there's a big link, and uh, you can click on that. There's also, you can sign up for our mailing list, and we'll send you you know, a pledge card, an envelope, and you can also just send in, a, write a check right now. Mockingbird Ministries, send it to 100 West Jefferson Street, Charlottesville, Virginia, 22902. And that address is just our normal address. And, you know, the truth is, for what we do, there's we're able to do a ton with what is given to us. We have eight staff at this point, part-time and full-time. And we're trying to do, you know, we're doing the amount that we would have taken a staff of 30 to do 20 years ago. And and it's fun. It's it's great fun. But we do need your help. And the other thing to mention is that all those gifts are all tax deductible. So we're 501c3. We have been forever and would really welcome your support. So that's all you'll hear about this until the end of the year. But thank you for listening, and we'll be back at you in a couple of weeks. Thanks, guys. Bye. Bye, guys. Thank you for listening. Remember, you can find us on the web at www.mbird.com. And we'd always love to hear from you at info at mbird.com. Audio production for The Mockingcast is provided by the Narrativo Group. And if you like what you've heard, please do drop over to iTunes and leave us a rating and review. Until next time, 